This is the Notion Club Podcast. I'm Ian Duncan, and joining me is Justin Hall. I'm an MFA candidate at New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. I'm the author of a trilogy of bio-thrillers called the Cordyceps Trilogy, as well as a forthcoming memoir called On Cove Mountain. I'm the father of three, and we live here in the Appalachian Mountains uh, near Roanoke, Virginia. We're actually here today recording in part because of the quarantine, the coronavirus pandemic, forcing us out of our usual haunts at coffee shops. And uh, we've been uh, meeting together and talking shop about writing for some time. And this is this is sort of an offshoot of uh, the disruption of our normal routine. I'm Justin Hall. I'm a cellist and writer. I recently graduated from a Master's of Music program at the Cleveland Institute of Music. My current work is exploring the confluence between the literary and the musical. Uh, My current projects are an upcoming novel, and also I'm working to republish a forgotten collection of poems from World War I by Jeffrey Bache Smith, called A Spring Harvest. One of our aspirations for this podcast is to sort of make an audio recording of what we've been doing actually for, I don't know, Justin, has it been 10 years? About 10 years. I think at least 10, yeah. We've been getting together and basically having a writer's group together, discussing our work in progress, offering withering critiques of each other's, <laughs> not usually withering. We're open to withering critique, though. We we don't shy away from that. Uh, honest critique, honest evaluation, editorial comments. We always read some of our work in progress, or we shame each other about the work that we should have in progress. Uh, I think some of our darkest moments have been years that we talked about how we wished we were writing thinking about writing. We were thinking about writing very effectively. But, um, you know, bringing, just serving as a sounding board for each other. We really want to be sort of neo-inklings. I think that's a a term that Justin coined. Many of you probably are familiar with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien meeting at the the Eagle and Child, meeting in C.S. Lewis's rooms at at Magdalen College. And that's really our ambition is to, to do something similar, uh, to inspire each other and and to talk, just to talk shop at, at times and, and really serve as sort of informal deadlines. Just knowing that Justin is waiting for one of my drafts inspires me to get busy. And I threaten to cut off his fingers if he doesn't get a draft uh, soon enough for me as well. I think I owe you 15 digits by now. I think we're, we're up to full full digital amputation by this point <laughs> but yes i am anxiously awaiting that by the way uh so that's that's sort of our ambition for this podcast yeah we've been long-standing literary conspirators and there's really a, a an old tradition of literary groups writers group that go back to coffee houses in the 16th century mm. and our favorite iteration is of course the inklings and oxford pubs and so this is essentially a broadcast of all the private meetings of minds that we've had in the past 10 years. What we'll do today is is read, each of us are going to read a piece that, that we've written, sort of freestanding pieces. Mine is an excerpt uh, 
from my upcoming memoir that really got edited out, didn't really fit into the memoir, um, a topic for another time, sort of how manuscripts take shape and sometimes take shape in unexpected ways. And you discover sort of the internal logic of a book as you're writing it. And it turns out that 5,000 words you know, or more hit the cutting room floor this time. So I'll be reading a piece that sort of is, is left out of the novel, but gives you sort of a taste of what that's like. Uh, both of our pieces are really about discoveries on the mountain. Mine is about specific encounters on the mountain I live on. And actually, one of the underlying themes of not just these pieces, but our writing process has been sort of an analogy of hiking a mountain. And mm. maybe we can talk a bit about Yeah. Someone asked me recently, are you a discovering writer or an, an architect when you, when you plan a book? And I've realized more and more and hiking has been a huge part of discovery as a writer for me because I, I sort of go out into the wilderness to hike with, with some something on my mind, some problem from my manuscript or some writer's block type situation that I need to work through. And, I, and I've realized how subconscious this process really is for me that I, I don't often know I don't often have a clear outline of what I'm doing. I'm I'm sort of working off bits and pieces of architecture, but discovery, I don't know, I would I would say it's you know 60/40 or 70/30 discovery architecture for me. What would you say for you? Well, uh, coming back to that analogy of exploring a mountain, especially the mountains that we frequent, um even though in our minds we have an architecture of the mountain mapped out. Uh, I mean, we know the trails inside out, the the way we know our own houses. But still, it's it's never not an adventure, and mm. there are always unexpected encounters. I mean, just yesterday, hiking Cove Mountain, we were both surprised at how the trail had changed since we'd uh, last been there. So it is a fitting analogy. But it's also a very real and necessary step in our writing process to be out on the trail and to let our subconscious take over and essentially uh, to let the mountain have its hand in our writing. Nice. Yeah, and for you, that's Reed Mountain. And for me, that's typically Cove Mountain. I don't know, maybe maybe this is a common phenomenon. Maybe we're unusual in this, that we have these mountains that sort of serve as our refuge mountains where we go to sort of hash things out mentally and that's that's a it's sort of a mysterious process that you don't really understand how it works you just know that it does work and if you go you know hike the mountain when you come back or wake up the next morning you're going to have the answer to the problem that you had in your story and somewhere along that trail at a point you couldn't specify it happens something clicks and I think maybe even the physical exercise component of that, there have been writers that address that, you know, I think Owen Barfield was one of them that sort of the, he was a dancer, right? And it was sort of like the physical and the mental, like these things go together, like get the blood flowing. We have to sort of treat the whole person as a physical and spiritual and mental entity, and getting out and doing something, I think, has been therapeutic for me. And 
and solving uh, writing problem and personal problems, which is part of what my memoir is about, how that mountain was a recurring presence in my life. It's kind of a way to act out what we're dreaming about in our heads. Mm-hmm. Throughout this series of podcast episodes, we'll be exploring the connection between uh, exploration in nature and the wilderness, uh, as well as exploration through our writing process. The two pieces today are both about discovery, and maybe there's a kind of special potency that these offer right now for a world largely confined. Hopefully, they will serve as vicarious adventures for any of you who might be still locked in quarantine. And that's really, I think, what literature does best is offer that sort of vicarious experience to those who can't have it themselves for whatever reason. We're able to stand on each other's shoulders and really communicate in a way that that literature is able to cross boundaries, to break quarantine mentally, and have have something really to offer. It's a reading and writing is a truly mystical fellowship of minds. Right, across all kinds of boundaries of time. And space. Mm. Encounters on the mountain. The trees here are of such character, such personable features, that they could be human shadows in the night, or giant people frozen in their postures by an ancient magic. The old, wise beech tree, bent and agape in perpetual wonder, watches when I pass beneath him, his eyes no doubt hidden under brows of foliage. The triplet oaks, conjoined at the stump, three inseparable brothers, sway with what seems to be unceasing mirth. The mother pine leans off a sloping hill, peering into the valley beyond as though she searches for her lost children. The battle-worn elm, cleaved by lightning into a ragged scar, stands erect in the center of the path as though to halt every passerby with his cautionary tale. I have walked among them so long and so often that by now I should know the names of every one, each individual as a friend, just as I know them by sight. They would have told me, I am sure, if only their speech was not so subtle, and if only their language was not the slow unfolding of seasons, and if only I could speak to them as they speak to me in the sign language of bloom and fall, harvest and sleep. But we have discovered other methods of understanding ourselves. Some days, as I stand upon a rock, I recite poetry from memory as they listen, scripture chanted like an epistle delivered to a huddle of early believers, and I reckon such words have, in millennia past, fallen upon congregational ears far deafer than these. And this is precisely how I see them, a congregation of the most faithful that earth can offer, who seem deaf only to the faithless and mute only to the hopeless, 
for by their very stature, firmly planted, they tell parables of salvation. How they understand me, I cannot say, except to guess that I play the peculiar role of solitary wanderer, a role perhaps reincarnated generationally. And it is possible that they do not truly know me other than for this, that to them I am the same man who wandered beneath them some hundred seasons ago, ever diminished and wizened with the years. But perhaps I am no more true in my own judgments, too often seeing them for their signs of decrepitude and decay, blind to the youthful vigor of their sap. The day hikers who come here see none of this. They do not come for the company of the trees, nor indeed the mountain, and it likely never occurs to them that this could ever be a place of belonging. They do not come except in the clearest of weather. I've never once met a soul in the rain, no more in drizzles than in torrents. When they do come, they come for the activity of it, perhaps for a view from the top, usually snapping a panorama or a selfie before returning to their cars. They go up and down without ever lingering long enough to discover what it means to fully be in sincere fellowship with the mountain. I know this only because I have watched them as closely as the trees, the way you would watch a stranger in your house. I watch them when they come to a fork in the trail, halting abruptly and scratching their heads in utter bewilderment, squinting at the wooden signs, often pulling out their phones to consult an online map. How do we get to the top? They will ask and the intonation of their voices lends the question an air of philosophical significance. I could tell them nearly two hundred different ways to reach the top, from any starting point on the mountain, by trail or through brambles. On occasion, I do tell them, but most often I allow them the gift of adventure, and something else, discovery. If they come here and discover nothing, they were never here at all. And whenever I see hikers ahead of me on the trail, it is never the case that I do not overtake them eventually, however far ahead they began. Perhaps it is because they have not been conditioned to this mountain as I have, or perhaps their pace is hindered by some uncertainty of where they are and where they might end up. I wonder if they walk through their lives in the same carriage. And wondering this, I ask myself, do I? Some days I play a game with the hikers, though they are my unwitting partners in this. The game is one I discovered unwittingly myself, when once, on my descent from the summit, I passed by a young couple, two likely students of a local university, holding hands and struggling up a slope. Around the next bend, I turned off the trail and climbed the side of the mountain, bushwhacking to the summit, a sure shortcut if your legs can manage it, in order to add an extra mile to my route. About ten minutes later I emerged at the top, and once again I began my descent, only to pass the couple a second time. They were holding hands no longer, rather using both to grasp onto trees for support, and when they saw me, they at first looked confused, 
and then shocked, and then they stopped short in their tracks as I tramped by. I suddenly laughed to myself, realizing the uncanny effect I had accidentally contrived, and that they must be puzzling out how I had transported to the top without a trace, like a magician manifesting out of empty air, while they had struggled that whole long way. Perhaps only I would think to double back up the side of the mountain to do it all over again. The fifth time I passed them, they refused to look in my direction, only continued stalwartly forward, their faces contorted in befuddlement. I decided to end the game here, before their confusion became paranoia, but I was nevertheless pleased to have given them something to puzzle over, perhaps a taste of magic enough to wonder at the mysteries of the mountain. And if they truly knew, or even guessed, the deep wonders of this mountain, they would recognize my little game for the mere party trick that it was. But such mysteries cannot be given to blind eyes, only discovered, slowly and intuitively, through that uncanny dance of a soul encountering the world, the way wind encounters leaves, or water bends about the stones of a stream. One day, as I was descending the mountain along a steep decline of the trail, I came upon a small, blond-haired boy, no older than twelve. I recognized him from a nearby neighborhood where he often runs about laughing with his brothers. But here he was braced against a tree and panting for oxygen, his face a deep crimson blush, and his eyes utterly demoralized by the menace of the mountain. Afraid, perhaps. I nodded at him and smiled. Tough climb, huh? Yeah, he managed to say, looking behind him, probably already convinced to turn back. Just one last push, I said. You got this, bud. Don't lose momentum now. He nodded and looked ahead, up the trail, and then his eyes narrowed in concentration, eyebrows scrunching in a wordless expression I've come to know well. Embrace the pain. He heaved a breath and then pushed off the tree and stomped past me, almost stumbling, and I tramped on. It was several minutes later that I heard... Rushing from the top, a yell, a howl of triumph. I turned and saw him standing at the top, his arms raised above his head in achievement. And so that hill was conquered by the battle cry of a twelve-year-old, and I'd wager there have been few cries any fiercer. I grinned to myself all the way to the bottom. I wondered, even then, what else I could have said to make the pain easier, to help his fears diminish. I could have told him that, as I long ago discovered, the mountain might seem formidable, but it is actually gentle at heart, and the most loyal of friends. But this would not mean much to him, not unless he comes here, as I have come here, day by day, until he discovers that very gentleness among the changing seasons. But, of course, the greatest discoveries we ever make are not the ones we set out to find, but rather revelations we could never expect. 
and revelations are a business we best leave to God, until, in the patient excellence of his timing, he gives them to us, ready or not. In the meantime, what we encounter in ourselves will be enough to get us by. Today, courage and strength one boy never knew he had. Tomorrow, who's to say? We have only to come here with eyes open and hearts rightly straining with wild expectation. I was inexplicably drawn, that day, to the ruin of the old cabin by the creek. It had collapsed, or perhaps it had been demolished by the forestry service more than twenty years before. I remember how it stood when I was a teenager, open and abandoned, the sort of haunt you might be dared by your friends to visit after dark. Had I not been fasting, I might not have lingered so long on the grounds, noticing shards of blue-bottle glass embedded in the dirt, and forsythias growing unkempt among the trees. I stepped from one old chimney-stone to another, imagining how they must have tumbled to their resting places when that hand-laid column fell, each stone blanketed now with moss and lichens, not returned to their old sockets in the earth, but gathering new sockets about themselves where they lay, scorched but immutable, their brief collection against the house but an instant in their unending story. Little remained of the cabin itself but the galvanized sheet metal roof, beneath which, when I squatted to look, I glimpsed one of the hewn logs, yet preserved from the rain, the marks of the adze still visible in that long grayed oak. I stood trying to imagine where they would have gone to the creek for water, thinking I might find at least the outline in stone or brick of an old spring house. It is difficult to describe the way one's mindset and pace change when fasting. The mind is able to contemplate things that would otherwise hurry past, as though an inner ear or eye were opened, or as though, having silenced the tyrannical and constant demands of the stomach, other senses at last gain their permission. I found myself, looking at the hillside behind the cabin, noticing how the clearing seemed to invite one toward it, though for all I knew then it may have only been the occasional path of bear or deer coming down to the creek of a night to slake their thirst. The decision was hardly a conscious one. I meandered past a few fallen logs, and then, where the forest resumed in earnest, I struck an old trail that appeared to lead purposefully up the mountain. I could tell at once that it was very old, worn so heavily at one time that the soft forest soil had been trod down and cast to the sides to form a deep trough brimming full of leaves. Had it only continued for fifty or a hundred and fifty feet, I might have taken it for a natural drainage. But as my eyes grew accustomed to seeing it, for it really was the sort of faint path that requires a type of faith or interpretive vision to see, and as my feet grew accustomed to the feel of it underfoot, I followed it ever further on a steep grade up the mountain, increasingly excited by the discovery. I had long since been interested in finding an alternative route, from the upper Appalachian Trail to the lower Spur Trail, 
But such bushwhacking, for reasons of numerous hazards, is best left to the coldest months, and it is no small thing to find an established trail, even a forgotten and partly overgrown one, in the direction one wishes to go. I began to realize, too, that the trail occupied the only narrow ridge that rises in a gradual slope up to the spine of Cove Mountain, without being interrupted by any rocky terraces which, covered by flaking lichens and slippery moss and interposed with fallen trees, brambles, and deep leaves, are nearly impossible to scale. I made it down from the top by such a route once, in a, ra- in a race with a friend taking the regular trail, to see if I could beat him back to the parking lot and the initial descent from the upper mountain had been so treacherous with so many involuntary slides and tumbles that I marveled I had not broken a leg in the attempt. But the man that blazed this trail had known Cove Mountain even better than I, and on that rugged mountainside had found this one direct and unimpeded path. Other questions came to mind. I began to wonder, as I realized how unique the geography of this ascending ridge was, if it had not once been the primary trail up Cove Mountain, long before the days of Appalachian Trail Clubs and John Muir types, and I wondered if, given its significance, the cabin might have been built where it was because of the trail, rather than the trail being incidental to the cabin. Plodding uphill through leaves, deeper at times than the top of my boots, I had the opportunity to ponder the motivations of a man at the turn of the last century. Why would he have so often left his cabin in the shaded grove by the creek of tumbled gray stone and climbed this mountain? Was the trail so deeply scarred because he had ridden a mule or led an ox, its great head nodding with every pounded hoofprint? What natural resource or advantage might he have gained by coming here? The trail disappeared into a boulder field just below the summit, the long, arching backbone of Cove Mountain that descends from those famous uplifted slabs at Dragon's Tooth. These were not the castings of a mining operation or the debris of a quarry, but the ruins of a god-made spire once raised there, the roost of buzzards long before the hazy column of a cooking fire ever rose from the Catawba Valley. Only a child's imagination could have summoned a use for those old stones now cast obliquely on the side of that mountain. I clambered over them, peering down into the depths between them, into the shadows they bridged, imagining a furtive glance into those woods before a jar full of silver was secreted among them. Only the rattlesnakes know, coiled around it these long winters, an inheritance undefiled, their scales as cold as the coins. I happened to notice a stone of an unusual color, and looking more closely saw that it had once been painted red, all but the windward side of it flaked away, and beneath it, sprinkled on the forest floor, were chips of crimson that had lost their hold. The stone itself was only a foot tall and had been hewn into the shape of a crude obelisk. When I lifted my gaze from that old marker, I saw what had previously been invisible to me, A piled stone wall of the type one might expect to see in the Scottish countryside, duplicated by European immigrants to these Appalachian highlands, who found them apparently not so different than their own. 
So he gathered stones. Did he garden here among the immovable ones, or plant crops in the rich humus, varieties that would not grow in the dark hollow by the creek? Or did he lead his horse here to graze upon some meager bald, or was it this rough little obelisk, unmoved, the ancient boundary he came to gaze upon, the upper reaches of his father's land and his grandfather's before him, that marker more permanent still than the placement of their own graves on the land that would outlast them, only the creek still murmuring their names, the chimney fallen and the roof staved, and the roots of the great oaks binding the soil they once toiled to loose, all in vain but for this, the trail, the trail borne so heavily, so tirelessly up that mountain, that long after every other work of a man's hands have collapsed and rotted, the paths he trod in this world remain indelibly worn upon it. Thank you for listening to the Notion Club podcast. Today's episode features music by Tim McDonald and Jeremy Ward, violinist and cellist. These are Scottish dances of the 18th century, interpreted by the brilliant and expressive performance practice of McDonald and Ward. You can listen to more on their album, The Wilds. Ian and I will resume our conversations and adventures next week. Be sure to return for weekly episodes of the Notion Club podcast. Thanks for listening.